For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the story of radioactive contamination in a Tucson neighborhood in 1979 from Jane Kay, the reporter who uncovered it. I'll talk with the author of a new book about the history of the Harvey houses in Arizona. And StoryCorps' One Small Step brings us a married couple looking for a better way to bridge their political divide. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In 1979, an accident occurred in a small factory near Broadway and Tucson Boulevard. American Atomics employed about 200 workers and mainly manufactured watches that relied on a radioactive substance called tritium to make them glow. In April, Jane Kay had just been assigned the environment beat at the Arizona Daily Star. She received an anonymous tip that unsafe conditions at the factory were causing the surrounding neighborhood to become contaminated. Tucson's anti-nuclear protest movement was activated by Kay's investigative reporting, and then Governor Bruce Babbitt got involved. Now, 40 years later, I talked with Jane Kay about how a newspaper, concerned citizens, and state government worked together to end a threat to public health. It was actually pretty amazing because I'd come over from the feature section, and I'd been on the beat for probably a week. And it was a man's voice, and he was very serious and anonymous, and he was in a hurry. And I, you know, I don't remember his exact words, but he said seven months ago at American Atomics, by mistake, um, an untrained worker who was on the graveyard shift turned the wrong valve and dumped thousands of curies of radioactive tritium up the stack at the at the manufacturing plant. And, you know, that plant was right in the middle of Tucson. What was your plan of action, Jane? How were you going to investigate this? What was the, the first steps that you took? Well, first of all, I, I had no idea what was tritium. But You know, this was shortly after the accident at Three Mile Island. So I had a periodic chart rolled up behind my desk. So I'd pull up my periodic chart, and there's tritium down at the bottom. And, you know, I learned that it's a hydrogen-3, it's a radioactive gas. And so my first step was to go to the University of Arizona and try to find some nuclear experts who could tell me about tritium. And so I found a a very famous professor, Professor Norman Hilbury, and he actually had worked on the Manhattan Project. He was a nuclear physicist. He assures me that it's just a light hydrogen gas, and it's going to disappear in the atmosphere, and it's going to float away, 
and he I remember it kind of a, with a wave of his hand, he just said, poof, you know, no big deal. So I called the Union of Concerned Scientists. And at that time, it was run by Dr. Henry Kendall. And the Union of Concerned Scientists sent me to a tritium expert, a rare tritium expert with a nonprofit. His name was Craig Sweck. He just said, that's just more than, you know, the nuclear reactors put out in a year. And he was saying, no, it's not going to disappear, that it, it combines with all other hydrogen in the environment. Well, when your first article about this reached the public, what was the reaction? I couldn't get any outrage from the Arizona Atomic Energy Commission, which was the title of the regulatory agency. But then what happened, everything changed when the paper finally wrote enough stories to have the state come out and actually test. And they found tritium everywhere, way high above the EPA standards. And it was in the plum trees and the neighbor's yards. It was in the prickly pear. It was in the people's urine. But the thing that really caused the biggest stir, it was in the food in the Tucson Public Schools cafeteria. So in the spring of 1979, they did testing around that kitchen that served as a central kitchen for the Tucson Unified School District, and they found radiation counts that were at least 2.5 times above permissible levels. The example given uh, about the cake that you wrote about, water in the cake had as much as 56,000 picocuries per liter. Federal standards allowed 20,000. And then in June, the Tucson City Council voted that they wanted American Atomic shut down. They said if the state didn't do it, then it was going to go ahead and take legal action to do so. Then people like the Congress people started getting on board and saying that they wanted a full um, shutdown while the plant was investigated. But American Atomics got its way by saying, um, we're going to, we want the hearings before the shutdown. Governor Babbitt got involved by then, and he began pushing for a shutdown of the plant, and that's, that's what finally happened. But what other repercussions and who else might have been held responsible for what happened? Well, in the end, actually, nobody was held responsible. Governor Babbitt sent the National Guard in to pull out all the inventory. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC federal agency, got involved as, as kind of a watchdog. The state lost some of its authority over approving um, radioactive activities in the state. The NRC did chastise the state for lax oversight of, of these plants. It's interesting because this is, a, you have to remember, this is a time the film China Syndrome came out, right? With yeah. Jane Fonda predicting a nuclear accident. Then we have the accident. 
I believe, March 28, 1979, the biggest national accident at Three Mile Island. And at the same time in Arizona, Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station is under construction. And so the NRC does not really want anti-nuke protests because they're trying to calm the public and say, do not be frightened over radioactive materials. And here we have this watchdial plant in Tucson that's leaking tritium into the school kitchen cake. So that was a problem for them. My guest was Jane Kay. Kay provides award-winning coverage of the environment for the Center for Investigative Reporting, National Geographic, and many other publications. This Saturday, a free event marks the 40th anniversary of the American Atomics Incident. Some of the original people involved will share their stories, followed by a no-nukes sing-along starting at 2 p.m. at the Hemel Park Library. Modern air travelers can usually agree on one thing, layovers are terrible. But think back to the turn of the 20th century, when the only reliable way to get anywhere in the Southwest was by railroad. These long, slow journeys put travelers at the mercy of the elements, and comfort was hard to find. In response, the first Harvey houses began appearing in the 1870s, offering fine cuisine and a comfortable place to recoup before boarding the next train. As many as 10 of these houses operated in Arizona, and some lasted until the 1960s. Author Rosa Walston Latimer details this history in her book, Harvey Houses of Arizona, Historic Hospitality from Winslow to the Grand Canyon. Traveling by rail was very difficult. Uh, And of course, the Santa Fe Railroad expanded through the Southwest, They needed more passengers to help fund that. Of course, it was hot and dusty and dirty. Uh, The train uh, was fueled by steam, so it stopped about every 100 miles. But often when it stopped, there was no place to eat. If there was food, it was not good food. After the Harvey Houses, of course, it became a totally different experience. And just as the Santa Fe hoped would happen, uh, people traveled to visit the Southwest, to travel through New Mexico and Arizona and see country that they wouldn't see otherwise. Do you think it was entrepreneurial spirit that created the notion of the Harvey Houses in the first place? Oh, definitely. Mr. Harvey came from England. He was 15 when he came to the United States. He'd worked as a busboy in restaurants, and and he went to the president of the Santa Fe Railway and said that he could develop these restaurants and that the service and the food would be such high quality that people would ride the train just so they could eat at a hearty house. His first restaurant opened in 1876 in Topeka, Kansas. And then Mr. Harvey died in 1901. 
so he started this strong foundation, but his two sons are the ones who actually developed it further. Well, let's talk about one of the most famous aspects, and that is the women who worked for Fred Harvey, who became known collectively as the Harvey Girls. Now, what kind of an opportunity was this for women of that era? Typically in this era, you were a nurse or you were a school teacher. And of course, Fred Harvey and the way he established his business set a standard that caused people to look at a waitress in a totally different way. To attract women to work in these Harvey houses, he ran uh, classified ads in women's magazines, uh, advertising for educated women of good character to go west to work. So women who had grown up on a farm and maybe had never been further than walking distance from home took advantage of this. My grandmother was a Harvey girl, and her first career, she was a nurse in Philadelphia, and she wanted to travel. So she went to Kansas City and had an interview, and they put her on a train to New Mexico. Starting salary for these women was $17.50 a month. Of course, their room and board was provided. So many of them sent money back home to help their families. Do you think that in in any way there was uh, any exploitation of these young women who oftentimes might be rather naive about what living in the West would be like? I have found nothing, and I've interviewed many Harvey girls. I have letters from Harvey girls, and I've interviewed their families. I haven't found any instances where anyone felt that these women were exploited in any way. If anything, Mr. Harvey established the principles to protect the women, protect their reputations. That's one reason for the uniforms, which were very pristine and early on. They went to the ankles. And when I do my research, I can always get get a good guess at the decades at the length of the skirt because, of course, they got shorter as the years went on. Uh, the women were given a nice place to live. Usually it was on the second floor built into the depot above the restaurant. Well, you mentioned uh, doing many interviews with uh, surviving Harvey girls and reading letters. Uh What kind of stories do you hear about the social environment or the sense of sisterhood that was built up? Oh, so many fun stories. And uh, sisterhood is a a good phrase. Over and over again, I, I have been told that When you worked at a Harvey house, it was like family, and they took care of each other. I have stories of uh, a woman who was widowed and had a young child, but the local manager hired her to work at the Harvey house, and whatever Harvey girl was not on duty would help take care of her child. I make the joke that Harvey girls were not allowed to date railroad men or Harvey house employees. But evidently they could marry them because there are a lot of wedding notices about them getting married in the manager's office. So there was dating that went on. It just wasn't always above board. Well, you mentioned your grandmother uh, working there, and I Mm -hmm. wonder what uh, personal stories you might have heard or mementos that were passed down to you from her. I have nothing directly from her, but she's responsible for this Harvey House journey that I'm on. I was adopted before I was three years old and knew nothing about my biological family until I was a young adult. 
and a biological uncle sent me my family history and a family tree and told me about my grandmother and that she was a Harvey girl. And I had no idea what a Harvey girl was. And she uh, was sent to Rincon, New Mexico, tiny, tiny Harvey house there. And that's where she met my grandfather, who was a whaler from the island of Mauritius. And he was walking to California. He'd gotten off of his ship in Mexico and was walking to California and stopped in New Mexico to go to work for the Santa Fe to make some money. And that's where they met, and they married three months later and spent the rest of their lives in Albuquerque. My guest, Rosa Walston Latimer, talked to me from her home in Austin, Texas. Her book, Harvey Houses of Arizona, Historic Hospitality from Winslow to the Grand Canyon, is published by the History Press. Regular NPR listeners have most likely heard StoryCorps before. Since 2003, this nonprofit, headquartered in Brooklyn, has archived tens of thousands of recordings in the Folk Life Center at the Library of Congress. StoryCorps' latest program is called One Small Step. It's a chance for people to find common ground by sharing how their personal experiences have shaped their views on social and political issues. NPR 89.1 is one of six radio stations across the country that were chosen to participate, inviting local people to have their thoughts recorded for future generations. There's a survey right now at azpm.org if you'd like to take part. Here's a sample from a One Small Step recording made in the AZPM radio studio between spouses Hillary and Michael Van Alsberg. As we'll hear, sharing sometimes divided political opinions can be difficult in a blended family with six teenage children. So how would you summarize how we, uh, we handle it when we have a difference, when we're talking about something? It depends on the difference. Sometimes <laughs> it gets heated and we will actually um, leave the room. And there's been times in the past where doors were slammed. And I would say that the disputes that we have are political frequently. We don't fight a lot. I mean, we don't argue a lot. Right. We're but on the same page. Usually but if we argue, I would say that it, it's only about this. It's I, almost sure. always about this. Yeah. yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. I think some of it is, is um, the conversations can get tense. And um, I think I can be, sometimes I can be condescending and antagonistic, just to be honest. I don't know that I interpret it that way usually. I think what I really feel sometimes is that you like to be devil's advocate and you will throw out inflammatory things just to see what a good conversation could come out of it. And if it's just you and I, I can recognize that's what you're doing and say, okay, knock it off. I know you don't really feel that way. But if you're saying it in a group context or in front of the kids and in the family setting, I have felt that I have to make sure that the kids know he doesn't really think that. He's not really saying that. He's trying to get us to debate and talk. And that gets lost sometimes. And, and I probably am a little overzealous in trying to make sure they know that you aren't saying those things because you really believe them. You're just trying to get us to talk about things. And I agree I do that Yeah. to try to create conversation or make some sort of a point. And just so so it's clear, I think, I'm right and you're left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you're right and I'm wrong. Uh, well, <laughs> that too sometimes. And I think that even just saying that is very simplified. I think that that is a very simplified way to look at it. I think that when people talk about 
political views or political standpoints or political parties or positions, very often those are polarizing. And so you, you can say, oh, I'm, I'm this or I'm that, whatever it may be. But when you actually stop and talk about the issues, when we actually stop and talk about a particular issue that affects our life or affects our community or affects the people that, that we can see it happening to, we almost always agree and it doesn't have anything to do with the party. I think that my frustration with sort of the political landscape that we're, we're living in right now and that we're raising children in is that there is no longer dialogue or respectful conversation. It's so rare to find. And, and what is frustrating to me and scares me is that that's what gets all the attention. The inflammatory language, the, the incendiary um, distractions divert from there's real work to be done. There's really important issues that need to be resolved. To me, it's, it's very frustrating to feel like the only thing that's getting attention and policy is actually being made from the extremes on either side. Do you feel like we typically agree when it actually comes down to the issues? Yes, I think that we agree more than we disagree. Probably, I would say it's probably 80-20 or 90-10. And I think that may be true in the world. I just think that the extremes have taken over the conversation. And mm-hmm. we had that interesting conversation with our daughter this morning about, um, we told her what we were doing today, and she had an interesting comment about it. Um, what was her comment? Uh, along the lines of, um, we promote the children to have um, an open mind and to do whatever they want politically. If they want to go to a political rally or go do a march or whatever, that's great. She said, but when you and I talk about political stuff, it can frequently get heated and they just leave the room. Right. <laughs> That's exactly and we have an right. argument about it. <laughs> she gave us a B. Yeah, we we think we're B, so yeah. proud of ourselves for being uh, good and diplomatic and encouraging them to have different v- viewpoints and making sure that they uh, that they know that they're supported. And she said, oh, yeah, you do that. But we don't want to listen to you guys talk about it. I mean, geez, that was fabulous. Do you think that it gets heated fast because you get emotional about it? Or do you think it <laughs> gets heated fast because... I'm doing the devil's advocate thing or... Oh, I think it's both. I don't think it's it's fair for me to... I mean, I didn't mean to imply it's only because you're a devil advocate. I think that I get very passionate and I get very enthusiastic about things and I will certainly advocate loudly and with passion about things that I think need to have dialogue around and need to have us address. And, and I do try to change your mind. If it's a thing that I really, really care about, I, I think that I spend a, a good portion of the arguing arguing that we do about politics to get you to see my side of the, 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 the argument. That's interesting because I feel like I don't ever try to change your mind about something, but that I just want to give you um, information that I feel is relevant, like fact-based information that I think is, you know, this is, this is the facts about something statistically. And sometimes we disagree on what is factual. Yeah, okay. That's fine. It's alternative facts. Mm, exactly. <laughs> <It's fake news. laughs> I think that what scares me about the world that our kids are inheriting is that they are walking into a minefield of issues and concerns that are not being discussed in a way that is productive. You've got social media that's really influencing their conversation and and what they're hearing and what they're learning. And and it's important to me that we 
find ways to get them to question what they hear and what they're reading and what they're seeing on the, you know, on whatever their, you know, news source is, that is that really true? And how do you feel about it? And is it being shared because it's incendiary or because it's it's actually what happened? I see your face. What do you think? I, I think I'm having a little bit of an epiphany moment right now. I love that. What is it? You just made a comment that our children are seeing what's going on in the world and that there's no civil discourse when it comes to certain issues. What are we modeling for them? Yes. That's, that's why problematic. We, that's why we're here. <laughs> We shouldn't model that. So you and I need to to get a lot better at having heated political conversations where neither one of us gets emotional or makes the kids uncomfortable because they're so they see it out there in the world. There's no middle ground in that it's all black and white. Right. And if they see us have conversations like that and they leave the room, they're that's their exposure to it. They don't hear the the closure part of it they don't hear the well I don't feel that way I just wanted to hear you know or have the dialogue or have the you you like the kind of the 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 debate and it's not just you it's me too I mean I think that we need to work on making sure that they recognize that you can disagree with someone and you can differ on what the issue is but you still can come together with respect and kindness for the fact that you're entitled to your opinion and I'm entitled to my opinion and there's probably room in the middle. And they don't see the, the end of our conversation. Oh, yeah. When, when it's like, yep, you have your opinion, I have mine, and you know, and give you a kiss and hug and it's all, everything's fine. They don't see that part because they left the room by that point and they just see mom and dad are having an argument about gun control or something like that. And You know what I mean? And that's And it's not going well or whatever. Well, I guess that I can... I can improve in the bomb drop <laughs> of trying to take a position I don't even believe in. Maybe if I say I'm taking a position I don't necessarily believe in, but I'm going to try to argue that position. But I got to say, and what you had said at the beginning is that I think um, you get you get very emotional I about do. stuff. I do. Thanks to Michael and Hillary Van Alsberg for participating in One Small Step, a program designed by StoryCorps. If you're interested in having a conversation about your values and how they were shaped, visit azpm.org slash one small step and complete the survey to get involved. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.